Hello, and welcome to Frog Flicks, the historical costume movie and TV podcast. I'm your temporary fill-in host, Kendra Van Cleef, and I'm here with one half of our original Broadway recording cast, Sarah Lorraine. So, today we are back costume recapping the second episode of Outlander Season 2. We'd like to apologize in advance if the sound quality on this recording isn't as great as usual. We are recording this remotely where Sarah and I aren't in the same location. Uh, We do want to try to get better mics so that when we do this, it doesn't sound quite so crappy. And if you'd like to support that effort, you can look for the support Frockflicks link on frockflicks.com and find ways that you can contribute to better mics and better audio. Thanks. Uh, I did a little short recap for episode one, which wasn't very exciting, but now we've got Sarah here to watch or to discuss it with us. And hopefully it'll be a whole lot more fun. I promise to make it as fun as I possibly can. It's all on you, Sarah. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) So I guess we should start with the fact that they've just made a massive leap costume wise in terms of storytelling going from Scotland and wool and I guess there weren't that many sheep but implied sheep and implied rain and mud and rape and all those other fun things and now suddenly we're in Paris. So um, maybe the first thing to talk about is Claire um, because I think the, the fundamental thing that's interesting and up for discussion um, in this season, at least to start, is the fact that the costume designer, Terry Dresbach, um, made the decision that Claire would have altered her wardrobe, or not altered, she would have played a role in designing her wardrobe now that she has money and access to Parisian dressmakers and gets to fly her uh, shiny flag, but she's not just going to go for standard 18th century wear, she's going to get in there and say, no, I want to do it this way, I want to do it that way, all coming from her modern-ish 1940s perspective. So what do we think about that? I think it's pretty cool. Um, I like, uh, okay, I'll start with the things I really like about everything that's coming out. Um, We saw a bunch of preview uh, images, I guess, like six months ago or whatever, with like the, the kind of brown dress with the flowers that hasn't yet come up in an episode probably next episode, but you know, we, and we all kind of looked askance at that and went, you know, okay, what's the deal with that? And now it kind of makes a lot more sense seeing the, the way that the dresses are being designed um, and worn and uh, in these episodes, um, especially this last uh, episode, episode two of the second season. Um, I do think it is, definitely obvious that they're trying to infuse a 1940s, a late 1940s aesthetic on top of an 18th century aesthetic, which I think actually works really well. I mean, it really looks nice, um, looks right, weirdly enough, in my in my opinion. Um, I think that there's a little bit of a kind of pushing it on the historical accuracy side of things. Not that it's 1940s, you know, put into 1740s, but that they go for the new look, which is Dior's new look, which wasn't debuted until, you know, 1947. And the dresses that she's wearing in this episode are straight up Dior's new look. And she's still in her mind, even though she's in the, you know, 1746 or whatever, 45, um, she's still living in 1945, 46. And so no one's seen Dior's new look. So that's like kind of the stretch that uh, I'm having a little bit of a problem with just from a historical accuracy standpoint. That's all. 
Except I do think she leaves, uh, she travels back in time in, um, God, is it 1946 or 47? I think it's 46. If I'm, I, I just watched it, so I think it's 46. No, 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 wait, it's 1948. It goes back, it starts in 1948 in the first episode of the second season, so yeah. But clarification, that mm -hmm. hasn't happened yet in terms of her, the, the timeline where she's in Paris. They're intercutting what's gonna happen at the end, in terms of Claire's lifespan at the end of this year, season, whatever. I, so I don't know, I don't know what month Dior's uh, costume designs came out, or costume designs, fashion designs came out. Um, there's, you know, there's been debate online and people saying that Claire was definitely into fashion magazines and that sort of thing. So, okay. I mean, it may have just come out. Maybe it's fresh in her mind. I'm, I'm curious actually, because, so I haven't read the books. So I just, all of this information that I know is basically stuff that I've gleaned off of the internet and the Outlander Wikia has been very useful in helping me get up to speed and kind of get ahead of things a little bit to know what's coming because I'm all about the spoilers. Um, but I think that the thing that is not clear to me right now is, you know, episode one starts um, and we see, uh, you know, it's 1948. So but she flashes back to like 19 or to 1740 something yes so in claire's lifespan she mm -hmm. was living her standard lifespan up till 1946 ish i want to say that's when she goes back in time she goes to scotland then from scotland to france so now everything we're seeing in france is directly following season one the coming back to the her original time frame coming back to 1948 hasn't happened yet in Claire's lifespan we're it's essentially a flash forward of what's right. going to happen in a, a year or so so that's that's kind of what my hang up is because if she's still in 1946 essentially in her mind or you know Dior's new look was not released until 1947 and she would have had to have been psychic in order to know about a 1947 thing coming up a whole year beforehand, so. Well, and again, I can't remember if she went in 46 or 47, you know, and it's a quibble, whatever. Let's say that the press just started to come out, she was reading the fashion magazines, and then boom, she fell through some standing stones. So that's what's new and exciting. I guess the one thing that I question, that's kind of a dual thing, and a lot of it comes from having read the books, Claire very much, uh, doesn't fully grasp the enormity and the seriousness of certain things about being in the past. And I think a great example is the whole witchcraft thing. So, uh, you know, we saw that play out. But I also feel like now she's starting to learn how serious it is. So with that in mind, there's a part of me that says the same thing I thought about Galus, which is, wouldn't they want to blend in a little bit? I guess she's really confident that nobody's going to think she's a freak. <laughs> Especially after the witch trial, you'd think it would have been a little bit more, you know, in, important to not be so obviously um, alter, you know, alter reality. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's great from, from like a modern standpoint when, you know, we're sitting here post-feminism, well, not really necessarily post-feminism, but after the feminist revolution has happened and we're assuming, you know, me, you, Kendra, we're all 
feminists. And so we like to see strong female characters coming from like a feminist perspective. And so this is, it's gratifying to see her confront 18th century Scotland <laughs> head on as a feminist. And that's really cool. However, it's also obvious that it just does not work. I mean, it's, it's one of those, I kind of like that about the way that the first season dealt with that is that she's very, you know, of course she's headstrong and she's a strong modern woman and, you know, she's, she's capable and everything. Um, but at the same time, she still gets, you know, kind of smacked down repeatedly over and over again. Like, you know, just because you're one woman with like a, you know, uh, uh, who's strong and independent, Scotland in 1740, whatever, is not quite ready for you yet. <laughs> and they're just going to run roughshod over you. So, yeah, going back to your original point, you would think that at a certain point it would occur to her that she's not just dressing up in a funny in funny clothes or she's not just, you know, play acting. This is a serious business and she needs to keep a lower profile. So agreed. So, I mean, the flip side, though, in a way, I'm actually glad they've done it because and we can get into this more in a bit. There's been so much press coming out. Um, and so much discussion, particularly focused on the costumes. I mean, this show is really, you know, going zeitgeisty. Um, and, <laughs> and so much debate about historical accuracy, which is, you know, our expertise. And it gives them the perfect out. It allows them to have fun with it and play with it and say, well, it's not a question of historical accuracy because it's Claire and she's playing by her own fashion rules. So in a way, I think that it's glorious that they're doing it because then we don't have to quibble quite so much. I mean, I still have a few quibbles, right. but it's not so much. And you know, now I'm saying, okay, I just have to accept that Claire's gonna wear what she wants to wear. Um, again, I have some issues about some individual costumes, which we'll get to in a bit, but just from a big picture, it's the perfect excuse, so why not just go with it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I get you with the, the historical accuracy part of things because it is, it's, a his, it's a historical fantasy. I mean, really what it is, the whole story is a fantasy story. It just has this, you know, dressing of a historical period kind of put around it in order to make the, you know, excitement, uh, story exciting. And, and so anything that's done in this, you, yes, we have to look at it like it's not, of course, going to be historically accurate because ultimately at the end of the day, we're dealing with a fantasy. Um, so, I mean, up until the, you know, actually the entire time I've been watching it, I, they've done nothing costume-wise that I truly find horribly egregious or anything. In fact, it's been very good. It's been very well done. Uh, you know, this, this particular last uh, episode where they go to the court and then you start seeing all the court dresses. I loved uh, Madame de la Tour's uh, dress. You just all the big bows on the stomacher and everything. That was a really cool, you know, very much straight out of like a Madame de Pompadour circa 1746 portrait by Van Loo. I agree with you, except did you notice that all of the dresses worn by the court ladies, with one exception, which we'll talk about in a second, were all random fitted back dresses. Now, they didn't have back lacing, for which I was thrilled. However, they would all have been wearing robes a la Francaise or sack back gowns, whatever you want to call it, with the big, long, hanging, floaty pleats in back. And the only person even approaching this was uh, Jamie's ex flirtation from years and years ago, who's randomly wearing what's a robe a la Piedmontes, which is a 1770s style where the back pleats are cut separate from the, from the dress and you can see right through them. But so here's the thing though, I mean, again, we're talking, it's a fantasy. So how much leeway do we want to give them 
do we want do we want it to be historically accurate or do we want it to just have the impression because it's a fantasy and have it the, the impression done well you know that kind of a thing which i think that they're definitely achieving um but i know that our you know our mandate of course is we'll, we're going to point out the historical inaccuracies because that's what we do um so there are some definitely some glaring issues from a historical accuracy standpoint um with a lot of the things like i mentioned madame de la tour's um or de la tour de la pin de la tour de la pin whatever anyway she um her dress madame de la tour's dress uh while it looks great um you know visually from the front and like you point out it should actually be a, a francaise back at this period in time and it's not um the bodice construction is a very modern bodice construction i mean there's a lot of these kind of you know modern um, construction tricks that I'm, I see happening time and again with a lot of the bodices, especially in the, uh, in the show. So that, that was something that did leap out at me. Yeah. You know, I can, I can quibble about, you know, an inappropriate princess scene with the best of them. Um, but at the same time, does it really bother me? Nah, I can live with it. I have a hard time letting go of the, where are the Frances backs? Hmm. That's just, to me, that's just like such a feature of this, era and of course um i can i agree with you it is a historical fantasy and the problem is we're having this conversation right at the time that all this press is coming out that's talking about how accurate the costumes right or right. are supposed to be and it's like well it's close but you know wait what i mean okay i am just thrilled there's no back lacing right uh exactly and and i know that uh of course, you're probably the same way. People have probably been sending you all sorts of stuff from on Facebook, like, "Oh, read this article in Vanity Fair about, you know, the the shocking clothes in this particular episode of of Outlander." And then you read it, and it's all, "Oh, we were super historically accurate. We tried really hard to get everything down to the tiniest detail, be correct." And like, there's no way you can do that. There's just no way. I mean, like, we have that problem as historical reenactors, and that there's just no way that you can be historically accurate down to the tiniest detail. So I, I think I would appreciate, honestly, hearing a little bit more honesty about it's not totally historically accurate. We went for an impression. We went for um, the, the look, the overall look. And we got playful with things. And we did a lot of research. But a lot of that research can't be translated into the movie or the TV show for various reasons. You know, is it budgetary? Um, they couldn't afford that much fabric for a robot of Francaise, so they had to make smaller dresses? Um, was it just, you know, something that wouldn't show on on screen, therefore they didn't feel compelled to, to do it? You know, that's that's kind of what I would want to hear from someone um, talking about what the, the historical accuracy stand, um, issue. And I'm not hearing that. I'm, instead, I'm getting a lot of the same hype that almost every historical TV show movie does kind of when they're when they're getting their little costume hype uh uh exposure where it's all we tried to be very very historically accurate and we really did our research and we really made sure that every you know crossed the t's and dotted the i's and it's just not true <laughs> the people like us know and can see it and it's glaring and it's obvious that it's just and and also that it's really just impossible and it's okay to admit that it's really okay to admit that i i think that's kind of the, the issue right there is that we find uh or people some people may find it hard to admit 
that it's impossible to be historically accurate down to the tiniest detail. And therefore, it sounds better to say we were historically accurate down to the tiny detail, tiniest detail, and then assume that like 99% of the people watching it are not like me and you <laughs> and our readers. So, you know, obviously they're not talking to us. Right. And, you know, I completely agree with everything you've just said. Um, I don't expect that they're going to be able to do even what Wolf Hall did. And you know what? I bet Wolf Hall used sewing machines. You know, yeah. uh, they may have <laughs> talked about pinning on sleeves and things like that, but I bet they were still sewing those sleeves with sewing machines. Um, I do think part of it is talking to normies. So mm -hmm. especially the costume designer for the show. I mean, she's doing all this press and she's talking to normies and they're not maybe going to understand the subtle gradations that we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am really glad that they're going for a realistic look because if they went total rain or if they went just super, you know, oh my gosh, they're all in Lord of the Rings dresses. I mean, I loved the books and I would have had a much harder time watching the show. So mm -hmm. I totally agree. I mean, the, the things that we're talking about are quibbles and, um, you know, there's a few major quibbles and a lot of minor quibbles and, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, to me, in a way, it's more, it's interesting to talk about. In some ways, it's better that they do do some, some things that aren't completely historically accurate because, hey, it gives us something to talk about. So I have a question. Um, I, you're, you're better researched in this particular era of the 18th century than I am. I've always felt this. Um, what's with the nipple rings <laughs> on the mistress? Like, I don't remember reading anything about nipple rings being an 18th century thing. So me educate me. Sir. So, okay. <laughs> so our, our third podcaster, uh, our usual host, Tristan, and I had a long conversation about this because there's there's one interview that's all about the nipple rings. And first of all, okay, so it's on the King's Mistress. First of all, I didn't get that they were nipple rings. I just saw this little white feathery thing outlining her nipples, and that's all I saw. So I don't know. I mean, we have an HD TV, so I don't know what I missed, but I missed that there were piercings involved. But then, so there's these. I think part of it is probably that the costume designer is having to be polite to the author because I saw her like a quote in, I think it was on a Vanity Fair article where she said, we couldn't find many portraits showing pierced nipples. Yeah. And I was like, have you found any? Because if you that, have, I totally want to know about this. That's exactly the, the one thing that I was curious about was that did the, did the actress actually pierce her nipples for this? <laughs> or were they already pierced? I mean, did she really like want to commit to her role? And I, it just was really all very vague to me about like the level of commitment that was happening with this nipple piercing <laughs> extravaganza. Uh, the other thing too is that there were a lot of, uh, you know, there are a lot of, of the libels in the 18th century that show women with their bodices cut very low and nipples peeking out. But those were libels. I mean, those were like the pornographic tracts that were being published and it was you know, slanderous and everything. It's not necessarily the actual way people wore their clothes back then, so. So the part of the problem is that the visual imagery for this era is not as great as it is starting after 1775-ish or so mm -hmm. when fashion magazines and fashion plates get started. I mean, there are almanacs and things like that. And of course there's portraiture and drawings and things like that. Mm -hmm. I've 
one of the things that confuses me is that in the 1770s and 80s, there are a decent significant number of fashion plates where the woman's boobs are out or, or just sort of just under the nipple. And I've never seen that anywhere else. I've never seen it on a painting, etc. cetera. Um, and I've never seen any references to it in the 18th century. So it completely confuses me whether or not it was actually in any way happening. Because it's not like where you hear in the Regency and you could see their nipples through their dresses. I mean, there's just, I've seen no mentions whatsoever at all about boobs or nipples. Outside of the, uh, like I was saying, the libels, um, you do see the illustrations with the nipples exposed in that. But I mean, that was the point. They were pornographic. They were trying to be, you know, uh, uh, in, inciting some kind of, you know, sexual, or implying a sexual deviancy in some way or another. Um, it's just, yeah, it, I've never seen anything, especially this early in the 18th century, that gives any kind of, you know, support for the fact that the nipples were exposed. But again, we're going from what's in the book. They're being faithful to what was written in the book, right? It's, yeah. Right. And that's another thing that I feel like, um, is another argument and, and a good one. If they're trying to take the book and put that on screen, then great, yeah, you do that. And I mean, I will say, I think that what the the initial, the book author, Diana Gabaldon, is trying to, was trying to do with that and also Claire's Red Dress, which we'll talk more about specifically, is she wanted to show contrast. She wanted to show that they've gone from, you know, woolly, uh, buttoned up people in Scotland to holy shit, boobs are out and they're pierced and boobs are flying everywhere and this guy's trying to, <laughs> you know, have oral sex with her out in the orangery, you know. I think she's trying to show contrast and trying to shock and show what a um, scandalous and sexualized and whatever society Paris was by contrast. And so, sure, you know, getting the nipples out certainly makes that point. <laughs> That does a really good job of giving a, uh, uh, you know, just basically making it very obvious that the, you know, the person with the nipples out is different than everybody else. Although, like you say, with Claire, you know, Claire's red dress, <laughs> which I think we should probably talk about now since we're getting to the boob portion of the discussion. Wow. Okay. So here's my question. So there were promo shots there and I've gone through and I've found all of the promo shots that look like they initially had like a sweetheart neckline on this red dress. And then suddenly the episode comes out and it's down to word like Durnham and it's got, you know, under boob showing everywhere. <laughs> I want to know yes. why that, was that a decision that was made? You know, when was that decision made? Why was it made? I get, okay, I want to hear, I want to hear the dirt about that, but. Absolutely, I want to know the same thing. And I uh, am hoping we're doing an interview with Terry Dresbach. I've sent her the questions and I included that on my list of questions. So the first thing that I want to do is read the relevant description from the book. Um, because in some ways we can pin this one on the book. And honestly, this is the one dress I have quibbles with. And they're mostly aesthetic, but here we go. So from the original book, and there's some ellipses in here. I essayed a restorative deep breath, but the tightness of the whalebone corseting made it come out as a strangled gasp. Handling the train a bit gingerly, I stepped down into the room, swaying gently as the seamstress had instructed to show off the filmy gussets of silk plissé led into the overskirt. It's a uh, red, isn't it? He, Jamie, observed. Rather, sang du Christ, to be exact. Christ's blood, the most fashionable color of the season, or so I have been given to understand. Um, blah, blah, blah. But I did mean to be visible. Jamie had urged me to have something made that would make me stand out in the crowd. I sashayed a bit, making the huge overskirt swing like a bell. And then at some point, Jamie says, 
I can see every inch of ye, down to the third rib. I peered downward. No, you can't. That isn't me under the lace. It's a fining, I guess they mean lining, of white charmeuse. Aye, well, it looks like you. He came closer, bending to inspect the bodice of the dress. He peered into my cleavage. Christ, I can see down to your navel. Surely you didn't mean to go out in public like that. And then later, they get a little frisky, and his other hand grasps the soft roundness of my breast, swelling up under the tethering grip of the corsets, voluptuously free under a single layer of sheer silk. Okay. 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 <laughs> so that's the original description. So we have a corset, we have a red dress, we have low cut, and we have sheer, filmy, all practically see-through charmeuse. Now, I'm okay with the fact that they said, you know what, we're not going to exactly do that for the, you know, for our version. But I keep seeing, and this is more a quibble with the fans, honestly, I keep seeing fans freaking out saying, you can't say anything about the red dress because it's from the book. I can. I think that the cutout down the center is beyond weird. And it would be one thing if the dress opened in front and it had a cutout or it wasn't laced all the way shut or something like that. That I can understand. But the random vertical cutout to me is so weird. And what I really don't get, and I have the same quibble with War and Peace, and I should get it because it's all about what modern people find attractive. Historical cleavage is not about separate boobs in their natural position. It's about smushed together boobs that are flattened and pushed up. And so from a historical standpoint, nobody would find that attractive. Right. But of course, from a modern perspective, woo, you know, we're getting to see interior and sternum and under boob. And I guess that's exciting. And I guess that's what they decided to go for because, you know, if they had just done what they did on, you know, any of the other characters, it would have right, just right. been same old. I just don't like the look. <laughs> I think that's where it comes down to for me. Like whether it's, you know, faithful to the book or not, like I said, haven't read the book. Um, it's a gorgeous color. I actually have some silk. Uh, Duchess satin that's that exact color and I'm like oh hey that would be a really badass color for a dress but not that dress not with that you know just no one, no, no one needs to see under boobs or like you know the vast expanse of sternum like I, I that's that is not the 18th century look that's like that's the other thing it's like the 18th century was all like you said like all about the up and the, the perky like mounds of flesh that are propped up and not the here's your saggy Boobs. I want you all to know that Sarah is currently putting her boobs into appropriate positions. Just so you know. Like this, internet land, you can't see me. <laughs> Other than that, you know, I think that, I mean, I, you can't go wrong with Duchess red silk satin to my mind. I think it's beautiful. I, my other quibble with the dress is it's way too short. And I get right. that they designed some fancy shoes with some pretty rhinestone buckles and the shoes are pretty, but she stands on that staircase when she first comes down and they're leaving. And I just burst out laughing because she's got this giant hoop that's swinging away and it's like a full foot off the ground. And okay. And then here we go. This way lies madness. I was looking at something on Facebook one of the official Outlander Facebook feeds and they posted a photo of the book and you know, it's one of those 538 comment kind of things. And people were arguing, I guess other people had mentioned that they thought the dress was too short too. And where I was seeing people were posting some random 
redraw out of something like uh, Braun and Schneider that showed like six women in 18th century dresses from complete different parts of the decade, one of whom is from like the 1780s and so has an above ankle cut dress. And someone was like going through on each one and being like, no, it's totally historically accurate, see? Oh my God. And I start responding going, that's 1770s or 80s, not 1740s. And I did that about three times and then went, okay, back away, just address it on <laughs> And so that's the other thing too, that it's that cafeteria style research that always, always will get me, you know, riled up because it is, it's like, oh, look, it happened 40 years in the future. I mean, like we're sitting here in 2016, what, what are clothes going to look like in 2036? We don't know. And so well, it's not like, like in 1970. Right, exactly. So, you know, exactly that too. It's like a big difference between 1970 and today. So there's going to be a big difference between today and, you know, 30 years in the future. <laughs> it is weird to me, I guess not totally. I think the further back you go, the more likely people lump, you know, a whole hundred years into one style, like the Renaissance, the, the 18th century. It's like people mm -hmm. only really seem to realize that there's more subtle gradations once you get uh, to like 1800. But before that, oh, it was just all one thing for a hundred years. But whatever, yeah. that's the normies, and that way lies madness. Do not enter those comment threads. I thought the skirt construction was a little wacky, but then again, the entire dress is a bit wacky, so I guess I can't really... Uh, I don't I don't think it's worth going into. <laughs> they have a really strong attachment to cartridge pleating in, on yeah. this production, which confuses me because it's completely not an 18th century pleating technique. Although I wonder if it started because they were working with a lot of heavy wool. And it is a great way to take a lot of fabric and pleat it down tightly. And so, and granted that dress was in red satin. I'll be interested to see as they move more into taffeta, even on other characters, whether they start going to knife pleating or something else. But they really love their cartridge pleating. And it's just, it doesn't work totally. But that's a super minor quibble. So the, the main other costumes I wanted to talk about was the um, the bar suit, which is the 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 opening suit that she wears that's like a silvery white mm -hmm. jacket with a black skirt that's supposed to be a direct reference to the Christian Dior. I guess that's new also look. a bar suit. That's a new look, yeah. Okay, that's what people get that yeah. name. I thought that was stunning uh, because silk satin and it's, it's either black and white or black and silver, I don't care, both of which are fabulous and I love the stripped down tailored look. I thought that was stunning and that was like my favorite dress of the whole episode. That was mine too, easily, easily mine too. Yeah, yeah. I uh, like I said, I, I really do like the play between the the new look and the 1740s. Like like I said at the start, it's something that I think really does mesh well. Um, and yeah, since it's a fantasy, okay. And I know I, I think the only reason I want to keep harping on the fact that that you know Claire's existence is pre new look by like at least two years. Is because Tristan will kill me if I don't make a big deal about it <laughs> or point it out that it's something that's really important because it is actually. I mean, if you're going to talk about it, she would have to be psychic in order to know what the new look style looks like at that point in her lifetime timeline. However, it's historical fantasy. Does it matter? Guess not. We should find out if what Christian Dior was doing during the war years and could he ever no. have met an English war nurse? And did they sit around and like sketch paper dolls together? Well, she was stationed in Paris, so Thank it's entirely you. possible, right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, yeah. That's that's just that's really neither here nor there because the overall effect is really cool, and I and I like it a lot. 
Uh, two other costumes that I just wanted to mention. Um, I thought there's a quick scene where Flair is at home and she's wearing um, a sort of crossover sleeveless jacket over a very puff, double puffed sleeve chemise mm -hmm. um, that is to me total fancy dress. I can totally picture all of the images they got that from. In my mind, that would very much have been worn for a masquerade party. Um, and then also Mary Hawkins, who is the sweet young English girl who's staying with Claire's French friend. Um, she wears a very pretty blue dress to court that has a very fancy dress cut in terms of the sleeves. But you know, I can deal with it and in some ways because it's a very English style fancy dress and it wasn't over the top masquerade -y. It just kind of had funky sleeves for what you standardly would be wearing. And I, and I go back to as well to, um, to Madame de la Tour's uh, dress that she wore, wears for the, um, the ball or the party or whatever it is at Versailles, I'm assuming. Um, and I liked it. I did. I thought it was really cool. I like the big bows. Big bows make me happy. So yeah. And it was great fabric too. It was really pretty fabric. But. Yeah. Um, the one other thing that I just wanted to mention um, before we talk about hair is, um, oh, Louis the 15th. And I'm pretty sure that he's written this way in the book. And it's been a while since I've read this particular one, so I had forgotten. And it just bumps me out because I have a crush on Louis the Fifteenth. Um, oh. That that stems from a very specific dream I had about him. And so it's like, oh, do I have to see him constipated? Oh and, yeah. And you know, and I didn't think the actor was—he wasn't all my fantasies. But you know, it's very yeah. much how Louis the Fifteenth is written in the book. I did think Bonnie Prince Charlie was fabulously cast. In all of your research, have you ever uncovered any evidence for waxing? <laughs> that was the other thing. It's not something I've super looked into. Now I'll yeah. say in the books. It's a thing that again shows how sort of licentious the French are, and Claire is like horrified by it, and so is Jamie. Um, she doesn't, as far as I recall, she doesn't do it, or if she does, then Jamie's freaked out by it. Um, it's it's something I'm actually really interested in, but haven't looked that much into. Okay, okay, just curious. One other thought, and then we really will cut, talk to hair uh, or move to hair, and that is, I thought that the bordello scene was really cute, and oh, I yeah. loved the outfits that the whores were wearing, both the ones who were on stage and off. I thought they all looked super cute. And I just think that's an era that does uh, burlesque. So you, you can take mm -hmm. 18th century burlesque and mesh them so well. So I loved every single thing in that. Gotta love a dildo, right? <laughs> Those are historically accurate. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about hair. <laughs> Clearly powder is scary to modern audiences because nobody does it. Um, that's really my only comment. Other than that, I thought the women's hairstyles were very nice. They're small to the head as they should be in this era. Um, men maybe would have been wearing a few more wigs, but I mean, they were wearing wigs and, and that was good. And I loved the guy who ended up getting pushed in the pond and was drying out yeah. his ratty wig and put it on to bow for the king and all of that. Um, so yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was waiting to hear what you had to say about them because, of course, this is your kind of your your area of, of research. Um, and I felt, you know, just from what I've seen and looked at a lot in artwork that they, they did, obviously, where they were looking at historical, you know, source material for this particular, for these hairstyles. Um, I did like the older men wearing the kind of like heavier bottom, the full bottom 
wigs, perukes, or one of those. Am I getting any of those words right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then they, of course, the younger men, the more fashionable men had, of course, the shorter, um, shorter wigs. I did like the women's, the women's uh, uh, hairstyles, like you said, were nice and close to the head, not super high, not, you know, elaborate, but in a very kind of, you know, small way, uh, understated way. I like the girl. Uh, there was that one scene where uh, Claire is standing and talking to a bunch of the French ladies, and then they're kind of all being assholes to her. And um, she goes, decides to go out and get some air. Um, one of the ladies had a uh, this fabulous hairdo with like this like long ponytail kind of thing coming around her shoulder. It just it looked really pretty. Yeah, I thought it was it was the wigs all looked really great. The hair all looked really great. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the only thing that's missing, uh, and I can live without it is powder. Um, and I can live without it just because it's clearly something that most productions don't do, and clearly something that must wig out. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Modern audiences, yeah. but in this era, in my research, every friend almost. 99.9% .9 of French people are wearing powder in this in this era. So if you if someone wants to quibble about that, go for it. There's your factoid. So there's the question again, though. Um, so the white wigs. I mean, is that actually? We know that they had white-haired wigs back in the day, or gray hair, or something like that. And so was that just to not use powder, or did they still use powder with those? Like I kind of was curious about that as I was watching the show too. So yeah, they definitely had white and gray wigs, both of which were very fashionable, and that's actually where powder comes from. What's well, a two-pronged thing? Powder works as a degreaser, um, and so in an era where you're not washing your hair as often, it's like using dry shampoo. But white hair was rarer, so it was more expensive, so it had more cachet, and people started powdering to try to get that color. Now, my impression is that they absolutely would have had white hair wigs. Um, they would have had a whole range, and I feel like all of them would have been powdered by this era. Mm -hmm. So the fact, you know, I thought that um, the Duke of Sandringham's wig, it wasn't too shiny, so I was okay with that. I thought the color was good. I mean, it would have been nicer if it had been a little bit more matte, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the last episode, I thought the Comte Saint-Germain's wig was, it wasn't super powdery, but it wasn't shiny. And it as long as it's not shiny and plasticky, I can live with it. I'm a Count of Saint Germain, pretty hot, like it, love it. <laughs> Pink waistcoat, dark yeah. eyebrows, sold. Oh yeah, let me just, uh, I'll just bend over, you can just do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> totally, just not on the dress. Yeah, not on the dress. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't talked about boys at all, do we want to talk about boy costumes? There's a, I don't think for me a lot to say about the boys costumes in, the, in this episode, just that uh, they looked great, I think, over overall, um, I really loved the way uh, the costumes, the men's costumes are done, especially, of course, as we've spoken about it in the Outlander podcast we did a while ago about how, you know, the, they wore the frock coats with their kilts or they would, you know, alternate with uh, with trues and, and frock coats. But it was always frock coats, waistcoat, and then, you know, kilt and or trues. And so I like how they did that with the, uh, the, the Scottish um, men and then coming and of course seeing the juxtaposition of them like with Murtaugh you know still like clinging to his kilt and <laughs> and, uh, and Jamie of course is being a little bit more like you know when in Rome or Paris um, dressed like the Parisian so he's being a little bit more fashionable um, and I liked I just I like the the looks overall they look really beautifully constructed they look beautifully designed um, nothing stood out glaring to me at this point so that could change you never know but so far, so good. Thumbs up on the men's costumes. 
Yeah, I felt the same way. Uh, I don't know if there were any massive standouts. I thought that the um, Bonnie Pinch Charlie again, I particularly liked where they went with his wig. And I love that color, that sort of tangerine color of his mm -hmm. coat. But other than that, I thought everything looked nice. It's nice to see Jamie cleaned up. Um, and uh, I feel like his hair's at a very awkward stage right now. So I hope it grows out. So I was liking, liking when he put it back. Thank you. Because yeah. just looking a little yeah. dorky. Um, but other than that, yeah, definitely, you know, thumbs up on that. And, um, you know, look forward to seeing what comes next. And yeah. Murtaugh is hilarious in his hatred of the Parisians. I love Murtaugh. I've decided team Murtaugh. I'm team Frank and team Murtaugh. So, you know. I know, I know, what can I say? <laughs> Team Jamie all the way. I know, well, let me just say, I, I don't have problems with Jamie. Not gonna say, I wouldn't kick him out for God's sake, God no. But you know, I've got my reasons that Frank is, is my sweetie. Well, he looks like my sweetie, so anyway, it's hard for me. Yes, even when he's being evil, Jack, Blackjack, Randall, I mean, it's still, you know, he looks like Francis, so. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think yeah. that's it for this recap. I think we discussed everything pretty thoroughly. So uh, we will also have a um, picture screen cap recap on our blog uh, at frockflix.com. And we will be posting these podcasts and those recaps every Tuesday from here on out until the series is over. So come on in and let us know what things you quibbled with and which things you were fine with and which things you thought were great. Um, and we'd love to discuss it all with you. So uh, check us out on frockflix.com and uh, on Twitter and Facebook at frockflix. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.